0: Hey everyone, it's Patrick. I've got some exciting news. In this episode, you may hear some allusions to the fact that our iOS ITB app is not yet out, but actually that's not true. It is actually out now, finally released. So go to the App Store on iOS, type in Inside the Boards, download our app for exclusive and expanded shows, early access to content or podcasts that we're going to be releasing in the future, some meditations designed specifically for medical students with the hope that they'll be used during your dedicated USMLE prep time to help you stay a little bit healthier. And then, of course, high-yield samples from our all-audio Q-Bank and the option to purchase a subscription. If you're a previous subscriber via Podbean, keep an eye on your email. We'll be sending you instructions on how to transfer your current subscription so that you can access the audio cue bank on the new iOS app. It is a beta version. It's not perfect, but I think it is perfect as a companion to help you study on the go while you're driving, working out, whatever you have to do in life. We're hoping to give you back some time through producing this audio cue bank. Thank you for being patient with me as we've gone through this journey together. I'm very excited about Inside the Boards. I'm very excited about helping you with your medical education. And hopefully we're able to do at least something to make your lives a little bit better. So thank you so much for listening. Go download our app. My
1: life ain't mine. Who can Woo! I've been on low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind.
0: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today we have an interview with Chris Semino chief medical officer and vice president of Kaplan Medical. Chris has been on our show before in the episodes entitled Inside the Mind of a Question Writer, so you should check those out here on the main ITB channel. Uh, as well as last year's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 over on our Study Smarter podcast, we did a bunch of Kaplan test prep minutes where Dr. Semino provided some brief high-yield advice on preparing and taking the USMLE exam as well as other standardized exams within medical education. We recorded this interview live at AMSA 2019 back in early March. So there is some conference-related background noise, as you would expect. But before we get into today's interview, here is the question for this episode, brought to you by our friends at Kaplan. This comes from the Step 2 CK QBank Integrated Plan. You can get a trial of this or sign up use the promo code ITB15, which will give you 15% off any Kaplan course. And as a reminder, members of the AMA also receive a 30% Kaplan discount all the time. So that's an effective total of 41% off the purchase price of a Kaplan course. So here we go. A 42-year-old man with a history of bipolar disorder gastrointestinal reflux disease, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease presents with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, coarse tremors, and muscle weakness. Two years prior to this presentation, the patient was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and lithium was begun. His medications now include lithium, pantoprazole, albuterol, and ipratropium inhalers. He has a 20-pack year history of smoking. His heart rate is 80 beats per minute, blood pressure is 120 over 60. His physical examination is within normal limits, except for the presence of occasional muscular fasciculations. On labs, his hemoglobin is 13, leukocytes are 10,000, creatinine is 0.9, urea 12, sodium 138, potassium 4, and a lithium level of 1.5. The question is which of the following is the best next step in the management of this patient? A, administer propranolol, B, decrease the dosage of lithium, C, hemodialysis or D, intravenous fluid. And the correct answer here is B, decrease the dosage of lithium. All right, so this patient is presenting with the side effects of lithium. You know, lithium is used to treat bipolar disorder. It has a low therapeutic index and may induce multi-system dysfunction if the serum levels are too high. This is something you'd have to know, but the therapeutic range for lithium is 0.6 to 1.2, plasma levels between 1.5 and 2.5 our patients here was 1.5, present with mild toxicity. Between 2.5 and 3.5, moderate toxicity, and those with a level above 3.5 show severe toxicity. With mild elevations, side effects, which we'll go over here in a second, may respond to simply a decreased dosage of the medication. Let's look at some of these common lithium side effects that you need to know. The dose-related side effects are tremors, GI distress, and headaches. The more medicine, the more nausea, weakness, tremors, GI distress, and headaches you're going to get. Lithium also has some other side effects, namely acne, weight gain, cardiac conduction problems, hypothyroidism, and it's important to note that 5% of patients develop thyroid problems, leukocytosis. Polyuria, so diabetes insipidus is common, and then some other high-yield points, teratogenicity. Cardiac abnormalities, namely Epstein's anomaly, or atrialization of the right ventricle in the fetus, is the thing that you should know as as the unique teratogenic effect of lithium. So avoid that in the first trimester. How do you manage lithium toxicity? Keep the plasma lithium levels below 1.5. Avoid dehydration and hyponatremia because these predispose the patient to lithium toxicity by increasing the serum levels. If only one of these dose-dependent side effects exist and the patient is near therapeutic levels, simply decrease the dosage. And then dividing doses or using slow-release preparations, of course, can minimize untoward dose-related effects by decreasing peak plasma levels. To look at some of the distractors here, let's say you go through this question and you're in the heat of the exam. You yourself are presenting with symptoms that could be explained by lithium toxicity. You're a little bit nauseated. You've got some weakness, both existential and physical, and you're starting to shake a little. Maybe You've developed a headache staring at that computer screen. You get to these answers, and it's propranolol, decrease the dosage of lithium, hemodialysis, and intravenous fluids. Now, often the boards, when listing a laboratory value that is uncommon, will provide you the normal range. I can't speak to whether or not lithium is one of those things that a you know, student uh, studying for their psych shelf or for the USMLE, you know, I'm not sure that you this is a, a common thing that is expected for students to know, uh, but my inclination is that it's not. But let's say, as here, the normal value therapeutic range is not mentioned. In that case, if you're not confident that the correct answer is to decrease the dosage of lithium, the best strategy is to go through each of the answer options and see if you can rule them out or rule them in to arrive at the single best answer. Because remember, uh, sometimes you implement multiple treatments or steps in management that are listed as distractors, but you're looking for the single best answer for the question, best next step in the management of this patient. So the first one was administer propranolol. You could have been tempted by this answer because propranolol is the first-line therapy, and this is worth remembering, uh, for essential tremor. It's also used in migraine prophylaxis, but we don't have headache here, as well as in things like hyperthyroidism or thyroid storm. And there are other indications as well. But we can probably rule out using a beta blocker in this patient for the fact that the presentation is not consistent with essential tremor, right? You'd expect a more limited set of symptoms, uh, presenting symptoms, and his heart rate is normal. Plus, we have the presence of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is a relative contraindication to beta blocker use. Decrease the dosage of lithium. So we'd hold that one, In place, it's a maybe, even if we didn't know that the lithium um, range was 0.6 to 1.2, and that this patient's is therefore mildly elevated at 1.5, because we do know that he has a history of bipolar disorder. He has symptoms consistent with lithium toxicity nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tremors, and muscle weakness. We know that he's actually already on lithium and that his vitals are normal and he's got occasional muscular fasciculations. So we're going to hold on to that one. Hemodialysis. There's a mnemonic out there for um, the indications for hemodialysis, and it's A, E, I, O, and U. Acidosis, electrolytes, ingestions, overload, and uremia. So acidosis, you'd be looking for a metabolic acidosis with a pH less than 7.1. Electrolytes hyperkalemia, greater than 6.5 that's refractory uh, to medical treatment, ingestions, so certain drugs like salicylates, lithium, methanol, ethylene glycol, volume overload that does not respond to diuresis, especially when a patient has increased oxygen requirements, and uremia, so an elevated BUN with signs of uremia, such as a uremic bleeding, Uh, pericarditis, neuropathy, and then finally a serum creatinine greater than 10. This patient here, creatinine is 0.9, the urea is 12, potassium and sodium are normal. So hemodialysis seems like a big gun, even if you just know in general it's for really bad kidney problems that prevent uh, the excretion of medications and 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 keep those serum levels too high. In other words, this one you can probably rule out because it seems like too big a gun, as it were. Choice D was intravenous fluids. Now this one I don't think is so tempting for the simple fact that his heart rate is normal at 80 and his blood pressure is normal at 120 over 60. And then his lab panel is essentially normal with that lithium level being mildly elevated. I would rule this out because intravenous fluids only seems like the go-to more in the case of volume depletion. Uh, I mean, there are are tons and tons of indications to give IV fluids. Uh, But in my mind, you rule this out because he doesn't have any significant effects on his vitals, and that treatment is a little too broad, as it were, for this patient's particular presentation. So we stick with lithium as the answer choice. I should note that some of the review books do mention, and I probably should have just asked Elizabeth this since she's in psychiatry, just to return to propranolol as as an answer option, um, that propranolol can be used to manage the tremors that become present in Uh, Patients who are on lithium, but better as the next step in management, right, Um, would be to reduce or eliminate the drug that's causing the problems as a, a general principle of therapeutic management. So to wrap this up, in approaching a patient with lithium toxicity, discontinue or decrease the drug first. Next, hydrate with fluids to correct electrolyte imbalances and to promote lithium clearance hemodialysis for the presence of severe lithium toxicity, as in when patients' serum levels are at least greater than 3.5 with symptoms of severe toxicity like altered mental status, seizures, and or life-threatening arrhythmia. All right, I think that's pretty good as far as going over this question uh, goes. But before we do that, we want to thank our sponsor, Common Bond. This spring, we are partnering with Common Bond, a company founded by graduate students to make student loans simpler and more affordable. They just launched a new loan for medical students, and you are one of the first ones to hear about it. The loan was designed to save medical students thousands of dollars versus the federal Grad Plus loan. But it's not just about the savings. Common Bond knows med students have unique needs. So they offer a flexible repayment to help you focus on your residency program. And with protections like forbearance, which lets you press pause on your loans for up to 12 months, Common Bond has your back. All that, and you aren't even required to have a cosigner. Common Bond is also committed to making an impact on the social good. Every time they fund a loan, they also fund the education of a child in the developing world through their social promise initiative. To learn more about Common Bond's new med school loan, visit commonbond.co/slash ITB. And I should say, I was really impressed uh, when I met some individuals from this company at the AMSA conference. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I was military, so I don't have much in the way of student loans, which uh, my debt was paid a little bit differently. Uh, but my wife has a crap ton of medical student loans, almost double what our actual house costs, which to me is crazy. And I know as she's gone through residency, making those loan payments with all the other things in life can be very, very tough. So please check out commonbond.co slash ITB. We partnered with them because as always, ITB is committed to not just helping you with your education, uh, but to helping you with the things that surround your education within your life, and of course, when you support our sponsors, you support ITB and help us continue the work that we're doing to provide you high yield audio medical education for free. So, CommonBond.co/ITB. Now, let's hear from Dr. Chris Semino, Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Kaplan Medical. You're giving a talk here at AMSA 2019 on will I have a job at the end of medical school. Right. It's part of that concern or that title because technology is taking over our, our work as oh, physicians. That's,
1: you know, that's an interesting take on it, but it actually is probably not anything to fear for at least a few years. Okay. Uh, in fact, I was at dinner with some colleagues of mine from when I was at Einstein and uh, someone asked me, is AI going to replace physicians and teachers? And they've been working on medical AI since 1960. Um, and it's doing some things now, but ultimately it's all about the interaction with the patient. There's a diagnosis program called uh, d and they're trying to show that it was as good as doctors. And, and frankly, if you get five doctors in a room, it's as good as five doctors because they can't agree yeah. on what the diagnosis is. So it does at least as well as that one. But then they did a study where they had a doctor use the an attending use the explain and a resident to use the explain and the doctors using the explain got better differentials than the residents when compared to a, a oh, Okay, good. Yeah. I thought um, that was going to go No, oh, yeah, way. I know. You yeah, it sounded like that. But but it should have been the same. It was the same program and the only difference was that the level of the person who interviewed the patient to feed data into the computer. So it wasn't the decision-making process. It was the data collection that required the expertise to know yeah. what question to ask. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah. judging on what's a, a true, pertinent, positive, or negative, right? Yep. I guess it's the same sort of experience we have when any of us Google WebMD uh strings of symptoms or constellations yeah. of symptoms and wind up with some rare uh, disease some instead of a respiratory
1: infection yep. and, and even to explain my joke was always it always had cadmium poisoning in the somewhere in the differential like number 25 or something and people were like what's that does anyone get that well I wasn't going to say anything
0: um, I was just going to nod in agreement because I'm, <laughs> I'm in the same boat but Okay, so today's talk, uh, what are the
1: concerns? So the newspapers are full of things about the residency match getting harder and harder. There's sort of an irony there, because at the same time, they're also full of information about a shortage of doctors. The AMA, I think, predicts by 2030 that we will be short by 30,000 doctors in this country. By some measures, we're already short in rural areas. So why is there a shortage of doctors if we're you know or I Project, should say why is there a shortage of residency positions if we're projecting a shortage of doctors. So is the answer yes you will have a job at the end? The answer is yes you will have a job. I I will cut to the chase and, and relieve that. and relieve people's anxiety tension. that much. The the thing is though that the batch process has changed and that's still anxiety provoking in a way it didn't used to be. You know, it used to be let's say before two thousand ten, two thousand eight You applied, and there were two main reasons why people didn't match. Either they had red flags, they weak score, or leave of absence from medical school, or academic trouble of a serious nature, or they were overconfident. So you got those people who got, you know, the 250 on the boards and they didn't match, they got dozens of interviews. And they were told by at least one program director, "I'm definitely ranking you number one." And so they list one place or maybe three places because they're so confident. And oops, they didn't get anything. And then what would happen was what was called the scramble, and it literally was a scramble. You would get a call from the dean of students. You'd show up at their office Monday morning, and you'd be told, "You did not match. You've got three or four days for us to help you find a program." And they'd have a team of people calling residency programs. The dean would contact all the hospitals affiliated with the medical school, you know, and, they, and the programs all had open positions in those days. And so there'd be like a negotiation and a handling and you know, who did you know that knew someone that knew someone that had a position? And so most of, certainly all those overconfident people got a match somewhere, maybe not what they wanted, but they had a job. Then around 2008 or so, that's, that process started to break down. It didn't work. The dean's uh, students would call a residency program director, a friend of his, he'd get a busy signal. Yeah. He'd try faxing. He'd, you know, the fax wouldn't go through because the fax machine was out of paper at the other end. You know, that, like he couldn't, you know, he'd try to call a cell phone and it would go straight to voicemail. And when he finally reached him at the following week when it was too late, he'd say, yeah, I had to turn my phone off because it was just nuts. Everybody in the country was calling me. And so that's where SOAP was created, the Supplementary Offer and Acceptance Program. And basically it was turning that process into an electronic scramble. Yeah. But they also said, and there's these communication rules. You cannot contact anybody or any program or any anybody until they contact you first through this program. And so a lot of... Started saying calling it instead of the scramble or soap, they said it was sort of the silence of the lambs phenomenon. (laughs) You know, there there used to be this hum of activity of all these calls, and now it's like you sat around staring at a computer screen waiting for an offer. So the percent match rate turns out it's still the same. It's been about ninety-four percent for decades, and that hasn't changed. But that last bit of process is so much more anxiety-provoking. And the other end result is all the programs now end with almost all their, most programs end with all their positions filled. Yeah. That's unusual, actually. So that's what's changed, and the feeling of the anxiety is why people feel like, am I going to not have a job? But the end result is, it's really the same, but you don't really want to be in that position. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I can't imagine the anxiety. Yeah. I mean, well, I've had friends who've been in uh, these situations, <laughs> and... I mean, there are so many different milestones you ought to, you're supposed to meet during your medical education, and they apply to 95% of people. But for those 5% out there who would otherwise make good doctors, mm-hmm. um, the weight of, of that, I guess, failure, in spare quotes, um, has to be
1: absolutely crushing or overwhelming. Yeah. So mm-hmm. are you guys trying to prevent that at Kaplan? Well, certainly... Certainly preventing it up front by helping people get better board scores is a big deal. There's other steps in the process that are also a bottleneck and a problem. So even if you get a good score, you've got to get an interview. My nephew, for example, but also lots of other people who told me, I was doing surgery, I was in the OR, I come out of the OR and I check my phone, there's a message saying I've been offered an interview. I immediately call and they say, oh sorry, all the slots have been filled. So it's like the airlines, they're overbooking their interviews, because the residency programs want to make sure they use yeah. up all their interviews, and then some poor guy or gal, because they were busy learning, is not going to get an interview, and it's, that's devastating. You know, they, they feel like the chance slipped through their fingers. My nephew eventually got another interview, he got a match, and it was a good story, but for some people, that's their whole fall waiting for that interview. invite, And that's a whole other problem, which is pitting students against deans, against program directors. And when you go to the meetings at AMC where all those three groups are in the same room, it, it really gets tense and, and not nasty, but tense as to whose fault it is. Well, there's too many applications. Students shouldn't apply to so many places. It's like, well, what are they going to do? You know, they want interviews. so. They're going to apply it as many places as they can to get as many interviews as they can. That's another another reason why everyone feels so stressed out about the whole process.
0: Well, besides modifying the kind of match process, what what else has been proposed or is being implemented to quell the anxiety or the actual problem behind will I have a job at the end of medical
1: school? I'd say three things that students, medical students, but even pre-med students can do that really help that. One is all the standard things you would think of that, about what's going to go in your personal statement. So, you know, you don't have to like write a paper and get it published, but you have some experience with research, working in a lab, something like, just to find out what it's like. Having done that is useful for your own career, but then it's also really useful as part of your application. Number two is, have you shadowed a physician? You know, it's one thing to like watch... A TV show and say, "Oh, neurosurgeons—you know, Dr. House does everything, you know, or whatever it is." But actually, go through a, a mundane day and decide, you know, am I really going to want to do this for the rest of my life? Am I going to be bored, or is do even I
0: love paperwork?
1: Yeah. yeah, Well, it's not the paperwork so much, but even I feel like even... that's what they should tell med students. So, like, do well, that's you love true. That's true. A that's true. That's well, true. I'm happy to say that's one thing AI, I think, will eventually solve. So. Yeah. If the medical record companies could agree on some standards, but of course they don't want to because they're jockeying for position. Yeah. If or when they do, then AI will easily help in completing the paperwork. So that's a good news story. As far as what I'm getting at, like one of one of the, one of my mentors when I was in neurology residency would do rounds and you know he wanna hear about all the admissions and the resident was of sort off with oh this is a patient with dizzy spells. His attending insisted we admit him, and he would interrupt. He said, "You may be bored by that patient with dizzy spells, but you know today's boring patient is tomorrow's bread and butter, and you're going to see a lot of it. And if you're not interested in it on some level, then maybe you should rethink your career. Um, and it's those bread and butter cases that, you know, either excite you or bore you." If they bore you, it's like, maybe nah, you better think about yeah, what, what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, in neurology, it's not all Capgras syndrome and, <laughs> and you know, all these weird, bizarre phenomena. You get that, and that's exciting. Uh, but it's a lot of back pain, headaches, seizure, Alzheimer's. And you have to find a joy in having patients with those problems day in and day out. Yeah. So one way to do that is you shadow someone. And then what I recommend is shadow somebody in a different discipline. You know, most, most medical students even think, oh, there's five or six residencies. There's pediatric surgery, whatever. Right, right. There's 40. You know, there's 40 yeah. different kinds of residency. And, and almost everyone's surprised when they see aerospace medicine. What's right. that? And it's yeah. like, oh, it's a real thing. And that's sort of the second component or the third. I think we're up to the third component. Research, do some shadowing. But then three is think about a parallel plan. You may have always wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Your dad, your mom, your uncle—everybody was a neurosurgeon. And you're going to be a neurosurgeon, but it's competitive, and so you need to think about: Do you want, to, if your choice is not neurosurgery, do you want to be a cab driver, or do you want to be something else in the medical field? Students have difficulty with this because once they start exploring it, it feels like they're giving up on neurosurgery, and that's not what it is at all. Yeah, it's it's how do you pursue these two parallel paths with equal interest and vigor just in case. Yeah. And if you can do that, then you, you've doubled your chance, you've gone from a 95% chance match rate to a 97.5% chance rate.
0: Are you saying literally people who have kind of a backup specialty have a, a greater chance of Absolutely.
1: matching? Absolutely. Well, not if you do neurosurgery or uh, orthopedics. I don't yeah, know that's if that's going to help you. But. but with students, like I think there's a perception
0: that you won't look committed yes won't look committed like for me personally it was a week before the military match submission uh, deadline I was still torn between psychiatry and OBGYN which are seemingly very diverse but um, you know there's a lot of overlap actually and I went with OB but looking back I I think I could have been happy in a few different specialties some I definitely could not have been happy Mm -hmm. in but there's a number that I, I could have and I think that's really wise, and it's also one of my frustrations in medicine. GME is not, like, you, there is no real lateral movement within our field. There it's, is, but it's hard. It's Yeah, yeah. but it's not easy. Like, in, in my opinion, the first year of internship, whatever you do, half of that's learning to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Practical things, paperwork, right. the me. requirements for putting in orders and all these sorts of things that, I personally have already learned. You've learned regardless of your specialty. Um, and then there are other you know, overlapping things within certain disciplines. For instance, uh, psychiatry and OBGYN. I, I don't do a lot, but I do a little bit of primary care psychiatry mm-hmm. as an outpatient for my patients. It, it would be nice if there was some more portability.
1: And, and it's gotten harder also because now there's a, a GME funding rule. That prevents you, like even switching in the middle of residency, if you go, let's say you get into a seven year residency program and after two years say, I want to switch. Well, you got five years left of funding, even if you go into psychiatry, though, which is only three more years. But he doesn't go the other way. If you get into psychiatry and you say, oh, now I want to be a plastic surgeon, you're out of luck. You're only going to get two more, one more year of funding. And then the hospital has to pick up the funding. Yeah. So you have to be a good enough candidate. The hospital is willing to pay your full salary for the extra year. So that that's a tough one. But I will tell you, as a dean of students, anyone who graduated who wanted to, you know, they went they went to a residency, they were practicing, yeah. and then they said they wanted to go back and do another residency, they had to come back to us. So I'd have these forty year olds who say, "I was a surgeon. I want to be. A, I want to be a psychiatrist." That for some reason that seemed to be the most common example. My wife says that she's gotten yeah. adolescent yeah. psychiatrist. Uh-huh. And it's like, wow, you know, that's you have to do another residency. It feels like starting over. But yeah. you reach a point where you say, I didn't love all those appendectomies or whatever it was that, right. that, that is now boring them, and this is now they found their new, their new uh, first love. And so I give them a lot of credit for doing that.
0: What about the, many of the medical students nowadays who are doing non traditional careers in industry? There's
1: a ton of. Of of course, being someone who's gone from practicing neurology, teaching in a medical school, now working in industry for Kaplan, uh, I'm intimately aware of that. But there is a vast shortage of people who understand the process of medical care the way MDs do and then are able to operationalize it the way businesses want to. And so all of those electronic medical record system companies desperately, and hospitals for that matter, on the not on the practice side, but on the delivery side, desperately need people who have training in medical informatics. And so I'm board certified in clinical informatics also. I did a fellowship. Um, and it's this, this unique ability to speak both languages uh, that's very rare and in, in high demand. So even if you don't do clinical practice, if you get your MD, there are certainly it opportunities. Up. It yeah. opens up opportunities. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. we'll have you back on the podcast shortly. Um, sure. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's good to meet you in person. Yeah, good to thank see you, you too. Yeah,
1: thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
0: All right, so that wraps that one up for today. Just an update on the audio cue bank. Again, <laughs> the iOS beta app is due out literally any day. If I see the words binary rejected from Apple's development um, uh, portal one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. But I will tell you that the Audio QBank is not like the Fire Festival. Hopefully, you get that reference. The app really is going to be out any day now for iOS. It's a beta version. has some great features. Go to our website, insidetheboards.com, sign up for our email list to be the first to know, as well as get updates and offers uh, exclusively for listeners of the Inside the Boards podcast. Happy studying. See you back next time. Again, I just want to thank Chris Zaru and Logic for letting us use the track one 800 273 Five, five. The song title is the number to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline off Logic's 2017 album, Everybody. Everybody.